This is The Based Catholic, because Catholicism should be the base of all hot takes. All the cool kids now are unwoke. Some of them are going back to Christianity, because it's the only way to be rebellious. Because, you know, everybody's blue-haired, non-binary, and that's like... (laughs) It's the cover of Newsweek, so you have to be like a Catholic doing sing the rosary to be a problem now. Yeah. This current world we've created spiritually for people. It's about money and profit and everything has no history or tradition. Everything's so disorienting and people are going back to things that root them. And now your host, Jessica Kramer. Welcome to the Based Catholic. Last week, we dove into the first two acts of one of my favorite plays, John Paul II's The Jeweler Shop. It's a three-act play about three different married couples, all teaching us something different about the nature of love. Some people have even called this the dramatic interpretation of his philosophical work, Love and Responsibility. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to the first two acts, I would recommend going back and listening to that episode first. But with no further delay, here is the debrief on Act 3 with Professor Wilson. As far as the movie goes, I love this one because Christopher is played by Jonathan Crombie, who was the actor who played Gilbert Blythe in Anna Green Gables, which is my absolute favorite. (laughs) And it seems that these two, Christopher and Monica, they're obviously the children of the first two couples, but they're the byproduct of these two very different love stories. So I wanted you to set up the scene of Act 3 and what this couple signifies and their relation to the jeweler when they go to the jeweler shop. So Christopher and Monica are clearly in love and they desire to get married, but they are full of apprehensions or anxieties. And their anxieties, as you might expect, are consequent to what has occurred with their parents' marriages. So Christopher is afraid that he will be united to Monica, but that somehow their union will be in some way compromised, just as the union of Andrew and Teresa was compromised. How was it compromised? By Andrew's death in the Second World War. Andrew is deceased, and yet somehow he is, Christopher says. And so, in other words, Andrew is still present, and we talked about this earlier. How is Andrew present? Well, he's present, first of all, in Christopher. Christopher's flesh, Christopher's whole being, is the manifestation of the marriage and the love of Andrew and Teresa. Since Christopher didn't die with his father, the marriage in some sense continues. But we say, well, how is that though? Because that's not the whole thing. And yes, exactly. That's the problem. Somehow Andrew lives on in Christopher and therefore also in some sense in Teresa, and yet he's not fully present. Christopher says, I don't want just this sort of ghost-like continuing of the marriage that my mother Teresa has experienced. Christopher says, I want the full presence, the full suffusion of existence in existence. I want a full grasping of existence in untold completeness. So that's his great fear. You might say, He's not afraid that he loves Monica insufficiently the way Andrew at first seems to. He's actually so in love with her. He's afraid that he won't be able to have that love be fully concrete, incarnate, and manifest Mm. forever. And with good reason, because he saw that his parents, whose marriage was good, nonetheless was in one sense merely wounded, in another sense ended by Andrew's 
death. Monica, in contrast, she reflects, my parents live like two strangers. The union one dreams of does not exist. Is human love even capable of enduring through man's whole existence? And so we understand Monica's fear. She sees the alienation, the estrangement of Anna and Stefan from one another, and she's afraid that that's going to happen. But we hear this wonderful line. It's spoken by Christopher. Love is a constant challenge thrown to us by God. Hmm. Now, this is actually a paraphrase or a slight reconfiguration of a passage that goes back in Christian theology to the second century. Faith is a challenge thrown down by God. Isn't this kind of something that John Paul II talks about? Yes. Yeah, Doesn't well, he have yeah, a quote he, and, based on that? Yes. Oh, he definitely does. Yeah. So love is a constant challenge thrown down to us by God. And so here we get a real sense. The life of love is like the life of faith. It is casting out onto the water. It's like Peter stepping out of the boat into the water to risk the possibility of his own death or Monica's own death and thereby to go forward and give himself to another to come to participate in Monica's alter ego, her life. He can be conscious of the risks involved there, but he nonetheless has to take the risk. He has to take up the challenge of love. And Monica has to do just the same, but for a different reason. She has to risk the possibility of their love's failure through not the withdrawal of Christopher's body through death, but through the withdrawal of Christopher's interior love. She has to risk estrangement. But the thing is, they're going to do it. They go to the jeweler and Teresa, the mother, goes with them to the jeweler shop and she's hopeful because Teresa, as you'll recall, learned the truth about love, the truth about marital love, the truth about her vocation to love Andrew from the jeweler when he meditated on the full weight of their wedding rings. And so she's hopeful. She wants the same kind of profound revelation that she and Andrew first received to be conveyed also to these young children just starting out in the world. But they're not impressed. They hardly notice the jeweler. And Teresa thinks, oh no, there must be something wrong with these children. They must not love each other. <laughs> Something's the matter. That they don't hear the jeweler as profoundly as she did. In fact, just the opposite is the case. Christopher and Monica don't hear the jeweler teach them anything because everything he says, they already know from their own experience of loving one another. Mm. And this is a moment that when I've read this play with young people, they're really taken aback by. Yeah. And one of the reasons that they're taken aback by it is because I'm afraid they don't believe in themselves and their own capacity to love. Here's what I mean by that. What we're getting here is, you could call it romanticism if you like, or you could call it hope, but it was John Paul II's great faith in young people and their capacity to try again. We get that replicated in the play. The older two couples do come to have genuine marriages and genuine love for one another. But they're more tragic. But, like, But they're but they're not perfect. Yeah. They, they, have, they really have to learn from the jeweler. Anna has to learn from Adam and the bridegroom what the marriage that she's already embarked upon, what it really means. So the older couples are more tragic. Their love is more flawed, more partial, you might say. Not to say that it's not real, not to say that it's not sufficient, not to say that it's not a genuine marriage. It's not as intuitive. It's, it doesn't come to them as naturally and easily. And it's not as ideal as like a young reader I think that's why yes. a lot of people gravitate yep. towards the third couple because they're like, oh, there's hope. Like, this is a hopeful yes. story. Nobody looks at Anna and Stefan's marriage and says, oh, that's a great, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Indeed, you know, the husband is the cross that she that the wife has to carry. But you look at Teresa and Andrew say, well, clearly they're really in love. I mean, they're talking about weaving their existences together. Isn't that what marriage is? Yes, but it doesn't come as naturally to them. Mm -hmm. But in Christopher and Monica's case, they know from the beginning what real marital love entails. And they are afraid of it, 
but they're also prepared for it. And so the jeweler doesn't have to teach them how to love. Nonetheless, we learn some things about love. There's an image that repeats itself, I think, three times in Act 3 that sums up what we learned in Act 1 and Act 2. In Act 1, we learned that marriage is a participation of one eye in the existence of another eye, the alter ego. In Act 2, we learned that that horizontal participation of one eye in the other, that throwing down a bridge from one island to the other, that that's actually made possible by and is sustained by the eternal dimensions of the love of God, God who is love itself. And so there's a vertical dimension that sustains the horizontal one. And so in this act, the jeweler and others speak of a vertical axis, that love itself is shaped like a cross. There's the horizontal crossbar of the man and the woman participating in one another's eyes, participating in one another's subjectivity. But then there's also the vertical axis that is, as it were, its backbone and its support. And that's the uniting of the earthly love to the divine love of God for his creatures and the love of Christ. What is that? What is this cruciform shape of love? Is it just a sign that love will always come with suffering, the sufferings of the cross? That's partly true, but we hear late in the act from Adam, the thing is that love carries people away like an absolute, although it lacks absolute dimensions. But acting under an illusion, they do not try to connect that love with the love, capital L, that does have such a dimension. They lack humility towards what love must be in its true essence. At any rate, every person has at his disposal an existence and a love, but this structure must never be inward looking. It must be open in such a way that on the one hand, it embraces other people. There's the horizontal axis. While on the other, it is always reflects the absolute existence, capital E, and love, capital L. God as being itself and love itself. So the vertical axis is both God sustaining the marriage, being, as it were, the third reality that joins the two, the bride and groom, the husband and wife together, but also the vertical axis represents something else. And that is the union of man and woman is itself an icon of God's love for his church. This is what we learn in Benedict XVI's first great encyclical, Deus Curitas Est. Eros directs man towards marriage to a bond which is unique and definitive. Thus and only thus does it fulfill its deepest purpose. Corresponding to the image of a monotheistic God is a monogamous marriage. Marriage based on exclusive and definitive love becomes the icon of the relationship between God and his people and vice versa. God's way of loving becomes the measure of human love. This is finally what's revealed through Christopher and Monica. Not only does God sustain the marriage, but marriage properly understood is itself a revelation of God's love for us. The marriage of Christopher and Monica is an icon that reveals to all who see it the love of God for his people. Just to kind of bring mm -hmm. this back maybe to the culture and to the current scene that mm -hmm. we see, both first couples actually endure quite a bit of tragedy in their love story. Obviously, the first is because of a war. There's external forces at play. The second is internal forces. Maybe you could say a war between them. And then their children are the ones that have the potential for something that I think we all kind of recognize as more ideal. And I wanted to ask you, I, I, sometimes I think about it, I'm like, are we the reverse where maybe our grandparents were kind of Christopher and Monica and now we're back to being the first two couples? Or do you think that our generation maybe is less tragic than we think and we do have potential for greatness? Like what would, if John Paul II were the Pope right now, what do you think he would say to young people in terms of our capacity to love? Yeah, that's such a great question. 
Well, let's turn back to the play for a second because the play gives us the resources to ask that question. Andrew and Teresa's love was a good love if an imperfect one. Yeah. And it survives into the present because Christopher is there to manifest it. It doesn't survive fully and that's the tragedy of it, but it does survive in Christopher and that's itself a beautiful thing, even if an imperfect thing. As you mentioned though, Stefan and Anna seem totally alienated from one another and the fact that Stefan is her bridegroom, strikes her with pain. It's the cross she bears. And yet what happens in this act? We hear the person who has the last words in the play is the only character in the play who has not up until this point spoken a single word. And that's Stefan. (laughs) Stefan looks at Christopher and Monica. He looks at their existence and their love and is told that he should see in that existence with a capital E, God, and love, God who is love capital L. And he doesn't quite know what that means, but he knows that his marriage has not done a very good job of reflecting that existence and love. And so in the marriage of Christopher and Monica, because it is iconic of God's love for his people, truly iconic, as in Stefan sees Christopher and Monica and he sees something that transcends the marriage, Mm. that awakens him for the first time to his own failings. And so at the end of the play, we have not only, as it were, the continuing love of Andrew made manifest in this new marriage between Christopher and Monica, we have also the possibility of the final redemption redemption and restoration of the marriage of Anna and Stefan through, you might say, the stirring of Stefan's conscience at the wedding. So what that tells us is that it is never too late. My five-year-old son is named John Cassian after the great monk from the fourth and fifth century. And in John Cassian, the theologian, dialogues about the monastic life, one of the early ones is, who makes the best monks? People who have always lived good lives or people who have lived bad lives? And John Cassian says, you never know, because there may be a monk in your monastery who has fled to the monastery merely because he committed murder and he would be executed as a murderer if, if he didn't seek refuge somewhere. But now he's given his life to God and he's become a holy monk and he might be the most zealous. If a man who commits murder can become a holy monk, then it's never too late for the Stephens of the world. It's funny because in the movie, I actually really love this line that he says at the wedding of Monica and Christopher. He says to Anna, it's too bad we lived for so many years without letting ourselves feel like children. That's that's such a perfect line, isn't it? <laughs> Again, I think this play really testifies to John Paul II's hope in young people. The sort of Edenic hopefulness that's proper to being young. And children are a reminder that the world of the past will not necessarily be the world of the future. And that it's possible, mm. doesn't always happen, but it's possible for the future, for the young to learn from the past. But also youthfulness in at least one sense, also a state of mind. Mm. That is to say, youthfulness is an openness to resign the old man and to be made into a new creation is something that is always possible for the soul up until the moment of its last judgment. Well, and that there's a difference between, because there's also that verse where Paul talks about putting away childish things There's a difference between having a childlike mind insofar as you're being selfish versus the childlike mind and having wonder. But my last question was, what is the relation of Adam in the third act? Again, I don't think this is a perfect play, but it's a really brilliant play. And it's brilliantly constructed both philosophically, but also in terms of its aesthetic form. The nature of the couples across the three axes is really well conceived. But so also is this presence of Adam. We have Adam as that cry in the wilderness, mysterious and misunderstood in act one. 
We have Adam as, I understand why people would associate him with Christ, because he is a counselor that reveals to her the truth about marriage. And then in Act 3, Adam is not merely a prophet. He's not merely a sound in the distance. He is kind of a stepfather for Christopher as he's growing up. He is not just an allegorical figure. He's actually real flesh and blood. And I think that that really goes to the heart of the meaning of this play, because one of the things this play is exploring is that we're always tempted either to constrain love merely to the soul, to the psyche, or merely to the feelings and the stimulations of the body. But in fact, marriage is a union of the full person. And so Adam in Act 2 is just kind of a prophetic figure, a visionary figure. He could even be an, an allegorical figure. He just stands in for the, you know, the biblical Adam, and he's, he's not to be taken literally. But in Act 3, he has to be taken literally. He's just the guy who's there, who's at the wedding, and who has helped give Christopher a living father figure because his actual father has died. And that matters because it's telling us that Adam as allegory isn't the whole story. Adam is both symbol, but also flesh and blood. And so is the case with marriage. Marriage is symbolic, it's sacramental, it's spiritual, but it's also a union of two persons in the fullness of their being, body and soul. Welcome back to the Call Her Traddy segment where I give my trad reaction to what's trending. Okay, so my councilman cousin sent me a podcast to listen to with who I would call sort of the new anti-wokes darling of the moment, Barry Weiss, and economist Melissa Kearney to discuss her book, The Two-Parent Privilege, which I have not read. The argument that she makes with the data is that two parents in the home make for a more stable and materially successful childhood, which is common sense. Everyone knows this. But I'm always happy when data confirms what the church teaches. There's only a couple things I'd criticize. One would be the metrics that she chose to focus on, education, overall behavioral well-being. I personally think that the spiritual needs supersede other needs and that the spiritual life is more important than the other superficial forms of success. But more than that, in this interview, which I did listen to, and this interview promotes the book, so it really should have been said if she deemed it important enough, never once did I catch the phrase married mother and father. It was always two-parent household. And what I found really perplexing was Barry Weiss, who is a lesbian, civilly quote-unquote, married to a woman who has a daughter with this woman was seemingly standing up for the social structure of marriage and her two-parent household. This is so demeaning to fatherhood. To think that another woman in the home is the same as the child's biological father is demoralizing. More so, this is one of our cultural diseases. We think sex and gender is fluid, that it's all social construct, that there aren't defined roles for men and women, that they're interchangeable. God forbid you say mothers and fathers are essential rights a child is owed. And again, what is marriage? This is where Catholics need to draw the line in the sand and not cower like when social conservatives did by saying gay marriage is something we just have to accept and get past. As if it's not worth overturning like Roe. But I digress. Ultimately, these were my 10 takeaways from their conversation surrounding why kids not in a two-parent household are at a disadvantage. Number one, ultimately the reason why kids no longer live with both parents is because of sexually selfish adults. Not because a physical revolution of death took all the men, but because the sexual revolution spiritually destroyed the majority of relations between men and women. And unfortunately, children are the collateral damage in that. Dr. Jennifer Morse talks about the countless victims of the sexual revolution. 
you might be one of them. I'm convinced it's touched every family to some degree and will continue to demolish each preceding generation until someone says the buck stops here. Number two, one thing I can't stand that is constantly being brought up is the claim that men are now less desirable for marriage because of financial reasons. But no one ever explains to me why women would think to be sexually vulnerable with them and have children outside of marriage with them, which is positioning yourself to be way more vulnerable than in a marriage with a man that makes culturally less than he used to. Number three. The prophetic warning written in Humanae Vitae, the document of the church's doubling down against contraception, remains true. A society that accepts birth control is a society that thinks it can change the nature of sex, which it can't, and it's honestly really pathetically sad that it keeps trying. Number four. I'm not blaming Vatican II, but I think the massive decline in church attendance and faith over the generations has numbed us to the weight and effects of sin— And in not wanting to verbally stone and shame those who have made mistakes, which unjustly and disproportionately fell on women, we went to the opposite extreme. Now there is no sin. There's nothing shameful. You don't need a savior. Your truth is truth. Number five, I think viewing marriage as a contract and not a covenant makes it so that you can escape it, which again, is not marriage. Number six, they mention lower rates of teen pregnancy, which is good. But it's not because of virtue, it's because of porn and phones. Kids aren't getting together in person as much. And lower T levels. Plus a lot of them identify as gay. Number seven. The two of these women were constantly saying how it's good women are no longer stuck in abusive relationships. But I want to know, statistically, how many of these relationships are abusive? Can we define abusive? I'm of course against abusive and toxic relationships, But is that the reason so many people aren't together or getting divorced after having kids together? At one point, the word undesirable was used again. Again, if you're being sexually intimate with someone undesirable, that's a you problem. Number eight, they also talk about how not everyone would make a good parent to have in the home. And that's true. But there's a difference between a broken person and an immature and selfish person. Marriage and family can fix that. Number nine, I once heard a psychologist talk about how men are only as close with their children to the degree that they're close with the woman of those children, which is sad. But I've heard with men things are taught that they're not as innate. This is why marriage is essential in fixing families, because you can't have them without it. And you really can't fix marriages until you understand the true nature of it. Number 10, ultimately this problem won't be solved without the virtue of chastity becoming more mainstream. And like John Paul II, I'm a big believer that men should step up and lead in that movement. Like my hype man I found on Instagram says, You know, society's going to crap and strong morals are nowhere to be found. Relationships barely exist and everyone's just clawing for a cheap life. But you wish things were different. You'd be just as much at fault as anyone else in this society if you decide to fall in line perpetuate the same garbage with the excuse of it already being this way if you want to see an actual change waiting around for someone else to do it won't do a thing because everyone else is doing just that too
Space Catholic. I'm your host, Jessica Kramer. A radio listener of mine sent me this lefty article on LinkedIn. It's about millennial women's hesitation and dread of motherhood, which I personally can't relate to, and I don't think many Catholic women can relate to this. But I thought I'd comment on the topic nonetheless. Like I said, I don't think my friends, the women I know, dread motherhood. I think they, in fact, long for it if they're not already in that stage of life. But I think family life is more appealing and attractive when you're dreaming of it with the right person. With the wrong person, it looks stressful, lonely, and heartbreaking. And when I say that, I mean asking yourself if you think the world needs more of this person, another little version. Because boys turn into their fathers for the most part, for better or worse. Pay attention to that old man who raised him. What are his relationships like with his wife, kids, and God? What does he value and prioritize? How does he measure success? How would he define a man's worth? I will admit there was one part of this article that I found intriguing. The author wrote, quote, trad wives and their almost leftist sounding critiques of work and hustle culture, unquote. Basically, she was given a nod to the generational and cultural movement of women online voicing their earnest criticisms of life under capitalism. Culturally, I think our American decadence has ruined a lot of us. And I can't decide if I think it's because we are more selfish or because neoliberal forces at play are delaying maturity, making us grow into our selfishness. Do we all really have an obsession to travel, or are we just existentially bored and think those pictures we take on trips will make us interesting on our profiles? So with all that to say, I like to check the pulse in the room and ask other Catholic women, some married, some single, about their thoughts on motherhood. The author thinks millennial women dread motherhood. As a Catholic woman, compare how the culture views motherhood versus how the church culture views it, and how do you view it? As a lot of people have stayed up to date on the origins of feminism and looked at it over the years as it's grown, there's always been a very hyper-focused fixation on motherhood and a specific attack on that. At the core of the movement that was all about liberating women, the message was we're liberating them from motherhood. That what's written into the very fabric of their bodies, that there is something there to be feared that there's something wrong, that this is a a weakness. And if you're looking at it, if we're looking at our own bodies from a very utilitarian perspective, from a perspective that views masculine (laughs) traits as being optimal, then yeah, I mean, as soon as a woman is pregnant, you know that she is physically weak, that she's fragile, that if you see her carrying boxes, you should go over there and help her because she's physically and mentally, she's suffering. If you're looking at it from that perspective that looks like out of the sexes, we really got the short end of the stick. Secular culture is a godless culture. And because of that, mothers face more pressure because they have an impossible task to complete. Without God, motherhood is impossible. How can you be everything and do it perfectly all the time? You can't. But as a Catholic, I take great comfort in knowing that if I try my best to fulfill my vocation, that God will fill in all the rest, all my failures for my children if I ask him and allow him in. In a secular culture, you don't have that comfort because you don't allow God and you try to play God yourself. Another thing that I think is really primarily different is that they view children as rights and not gifts. And when you view something as a right, uh, you get to decide a lot of the details that you shouldn't get 
get to decide, I guess, and it tends to make you more selfish. A gift is something that you have to accept freely given. If you're kind of controlling all the details that go into your physical motherhood, then you are making the basis of your relationship with your child, not one out of just pure love, but out of your own wants and desires. My understanding on how the culture views motherhood is they come from a more selfish perspective. They hone in on what the mother can get out of raising children or how she can pursue her dreams while being quote unquote tied down by her kids. I just see that as, you know, set up for failure and not encouraging for young women to pursue marriage and to raise children of their own. Whereas the church comes from the perspective of mothers can strongly imitate Christ through self-sacrifice and in that you receive peace and joy and you find so much more meaning in life. And I find that, as a mother myself, I find that very encouraging. There's something that I have noticed in Catholic culture and in secular culture where there's an overlapping and that is this big push to have it all or that you can have it all. And I think Catholic culture has started with this push because it's trying to combat abortion and basically telling women that, no, 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 you don't need to abort your baby. You can keep your career and have your baby too. Well, the unfortunate reality is uh, you can't do everything and something's got to give. You know, if you're a woman that has to work to provide for your family, then yes, you're fulfilling the call that God is asking you and he will fill in the rest for you. But if you're just doing it because you want to be a girl boss, your children will suffer, you will suffer, your husband will suffer, someone is suffering. I think there's a lot of false advertising, especially on Catholic social media with this regard. I always dreamed of becoming a mom because deep down I just always was drawn to give of myself in that way towards children, just reassure them that they are loved no matter what, and just to protect their innocence. Having a role model in my own mother who portrayed motherhood as something so privileged, I definitely have the perspective that it's a great privilege, the fact that we can bear life. I would say that I did have some unrealistic expectations of motherhood. I didn't realize also how much children, my own children, would perfect me and help me to see my own flaws in life. Whereas if I remained single, I would never have seen these flaws. Come to realize just how selfish I am. The author says, to our generation, being a mom looks thankless, exhausting, and lonely. Is that because women are effectively working two full-time jobs now, often without a supportive husband and without the village, like living among and near extended family and friends? I can see my generation being a millennial and younger generations just not knowing how to approach hard work and to have a proper understanding that you need to go through suffering in order to enjoy life. I think it's funny how a lot of the reasons why people dread motherhood is the physical toll, the pain, the suffering that's physical. But hundreds of people are jumping in cold, ice-filled baths for the sake of their health. So it's not that we have this strong aversion to doing hard things. It's not that we don't understand redemptive suffering whatsoever, but we don't associate it with child rearing. I think that most women are programmed to basically believe that if no one's seeing or applauding, what they're doing, then what they're doing is kind of pointless because that's kind of like the narrative that's out there. The reality is, is that motherhood has always been part of the hidden life. 
and in the hidden life you may not get accolades or thanks it doesn't mean that you're not seen by the all-loving god and that there's not also deeper fulfillment and joy that can be had taking on motherhood myself i have grown to learn how to approach things in a more positive way especially when it gets tiresome and kids are just demanding you have to recognize how to give of yourself in such a way where you won't go down the rabbit hole of self-pity you know motherhood is exhausting and i do think it can be even more exhausting than it has to be if you're working two full-time jobs and you have no one to rely upon you can clock in clock out to an extent everyone can kind of do that with their jobs you can't do that as a mom things that definitely make it easier in those times where you're being humbled and asked to be a better person is having a supportive husband who recognizes the sacrifice you're making to be the heart of the home and hopefully will inspire him to take care of you and your family well so that you don't have to take on any more burdens because truly being the heart of the home requires a lot of protection on the man's part. I do think that unfortunately a lot of women aren't experiencing that. There's this pressure for both spouses to work and I think that pressure does come from wanting to be a response to defying these gender roles. There is that feminism there where there's that pressure for the woman to make sure that she makes her own money, that she doesn't have to rely on her husband. And if you have a degree, you better use it. I have been blessed to be able to stay at home with my kids and not have to work outside the home. And I am also very blessed to have a supportive husband. And even with all of that, it's still very hard to be a mom. And so I can't imagine having to work a full-time job and then come home and be a full-time mom as well. And I can see that feeding the mindset of millennials in thinking that motherhood is so tiresome, it's lonely and thankless, especially if you don't have that supportive husband if you're a single mom, which is very common nowadays. In our secular culture, especially in American culture, there's a big push to be able to do it all by yourself. And that's just not how human beings were designed. We were created to live in families and communities. And so I think that could help with the loneliness. You might be a little lonely as a mom, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. If it forces you to turn to Christ and forces you to seek him out more, it really can be one of the many gifts of motherhood. Why do you think birth rates are down, whether in the culture or even among Catholics? Uh, birth rates are down because our culture doesn't glorify family life anymore and community and marriage. And people aren't getting married unless they're of a certain tight-knit faith community. People are living together, getting dogs and putting off marriage and kids. And if anything, they're having like two max because they want to live their lives a certain way. Frankly, I think people would be happier if they had more kids because it teaches you to learn to share and live with less and prioritize like selflessness more. So sorry if that sounds controversial, but I grew up in a family with two brothers and the most fun memories, some of the most fun memories I have are going on beach vacations with my best friend who's one of 10 and being in a home with like 25 kids because each family has like eight to 10 kids and we shared the home with like two other families. It's a big Outer Banks home. 
Literally like the most fun vacations, crazy, but like super fun. Those kids all learned how to share, all had hand-me-downs, all eating not at five-star restaurants, but those kids were really happy kids. And they were such fun memories because they didn't have a lot and they shared and they were kind to each other and they had each other's backs. I think birth rates are down in our culture and amongst Catholics because everybody is on birth control or using some kind of contraceptive. People see kids as more of a commodity and not so much as a gift from God. I think on the secular side of things, like in the masses, in the culture, there's the obvious in terms of all the physical detriments of being pregnant. You see here a lot about surrogacy now, because, you know, heaven forbid you have stretch marks and your body's not always perfectly desirable and looks like, you know, a porn star. But I also think, too, that it has become more expensive to the culture standard of raising kids. Childcare, that's not a necessity of parenting. <laughs> You know, it's not that motherhood's not as exhausting, but the exhaustion is far more rewarding for you. A child has a soul. Everything you just worked on, on that spreadsheet for that company, if the power grid went out or a fire or you name it, that all goes up in smoke. But what you invested in the rearing of the soul, the immortal soul of your child, that goes on into eternity. Talk about ROI. Do you think millennials want to endlessly live for themselves and they're putting off responsibility? Or do you think that there are neoliberal forces at play that make adulting harder now and they're actually sick of living for themselves? Hmm. Uh, yeah, honestly, I think it's exhausting living for yourself and what we consume on social media is just a narcissistic lifestyle, even in terms of I have to choose all things and do all things to bring me happiness and pleasure. So it is very focused on the self. And that's why it makes sense how really investing in your family and your children and your spouse does lead to happiness, does lead to a greater feeling of purpose and direction in life. Whereas, you know, with your career, with, you know, having the latest material possessions and vacations, like these things are very short-lived dopamine rushes. <laughs> but I do think people are seeing that they're still unhappy. And so there's an openness there. I think particularly with Gen Z, there's a level of dissatisfaction there that I think actually sets the stage <laughs> for perhaps some dialogue with them. I think millennials are lost because I think millennials parents were technically baby boomers and <laughs> um, didn't really give them good guidance, specifically women on staying home and, or like maybe that getting married isn't the worst thing. And like feminism sucks and it ruined everything and it ruined women's outlook on life. And it expects women to get degrees and get secondary degrees and work, work, work and be boss babes and like completely downgrades the importance of what being a mother is, which is the most beautiful thing. A motherhood is a stunning vocation. And like now millennial women are like in their 30s and they want to settle down and get married. And it's hard. This also is ignoring the fact that men is a whole other issue, but it's it's hard for women these days. The author suggests this, but do you think motherhood destroys a woman's health, friendships, and sex life? I think very much so the opposite. So much of our physiological health is impacted by our levels of stress and anxiety. Being other-centered is so much better for your mental health. And, and although there is still stress in the life of the family, there's also a greater opportunity for experiences of great joy and peace and happiness that are definitely beneficial for your physiological health. 
I think that motherhood is an opportunity to destroy an obsession with health, an obsession with friendships, and an obsession with a very selfish sex life. And at least for me, as far as my health, I think it's improved since I've become a mother because as I've grown children within me and started caring about their little bodies, especially when they come out, I've done more research and reading. As far as friendships, honestly, I've been really incredibly blessed. I still have many single girlfriends and I have many married mom friends, and I'm just like been blessed. I feel like my friendships have not been destroyed. They've changed for sure and they may look a little bit different but think at least personally you know if you love someone even if you know how you hang out looks a little bit different you can still maintain a friendship and in fact your friendship can have a different side to it now and so that's actually really an example of growth as far as my sex life um yeah of course it looks different but not that different because i got married and got pregnant literally on my honeymoon so i've only really known my romantic life with children what you want motherhood to destroy is any sort of selfish wounds that are holding you back in those areas of your life so hopefully it does destroy that so that you could actually be free and grow into the person that god wants you to be being a mom, I have come to appreciate how amazing my body is. I've been able to nurse and also having kids gets me on my feet a lot more often instead of me just sitting in the chair all day. Kids get me outside to enjoy the good weather. It's also motivated me to eat more healthily because I'm nursing and then also to get better food for my family so that they just have a more healthy diet. I want the best for them in that way. Yeah, it's harder to get together with my friends, but when I do get together with them, I really appreciate their company all the more because it's not as frequent and I'm able to share new experiences with them as a mother, especially with my friends who are single or who are in the same phase of motherhood as I am. I've also grown to appreciate friendships with older women who have been moms for a really long time and to learn from them and gain wisdom from them and advice on how to approach different situations with my children and with my husband. It also helps me realize like which friendships are more grounded because the ones that I don't see as often, those friendships have kind of dwindled away, but the good friends have stayed and remained in contact. And yeah, it just, I guess, has been a, a test in that way in regards to my friendships. Becoming a mom hasn't ruined my sex life. I believe it actually has enhanced it because my husband is now all the more attractive to me because he is the father of my kids and I feel secure in our relationship and with that comes a good sex life. And then uh, sex lives, I can't really speak to that because, you know, not in that stage of life. However, I've heard from a lot of guys that it's really, really attractive when their wife is in that role of motherhood. When she's pregnant, it's like, whoa, that's that's some strength right there. That That's such a beautiful thing. And there's just so much awe and reverence. Is there a part of you that questions bringing children into the world, not because of climate change, but because of how bad everything is getting? Or even pondered the theological question, why bring a child into a suffering world who didn't ask to be here? 
Yeah, I personally, maybe a very tiny, tiny part of me questions bringing children into the world because of how morally everything's bad. And of course, I have no desire to see my child suffer. That's the whole point of motherhood. You have to decide this at a certain point when you become a mom to just blindly trust God and know that if I say yes to him, my children will have every opportunity to be with him in paradise. And yes, I do not want my kids to suffer. I don't, heck, I don't even want myself to suffer. I'm a total wimp. But I do not see all suffering as the worst thing ever because Christ has conquered it. Suffering and death and sin. You know, if I hopefully do my best to give my child the tools that they can use to make it to paradise and be with him, then the suffering that Christ allows, that God allows in their lives, will be opportunities for them to know and love and serve him more and to be drawn higher up and further in. Don't worry about that. You know, God doesn't want us to worry. He explicitly states that in the Bible, to not worry. If that baby is supposed to exist, the baby will exist. So why worry? Oh gosh, I guess my quick answer to that is no. And honestly, it's precisely because of how crappy things are where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And children are such a grace. I feel like there's so many saints where it was like Saint Catherine of such and such was like number 12 of 12, you know, where it's like, oh man, I have to like bring more life into this world to bring more grace into this world, to bring more saints into this world. Do you think the role of mother and father is interchangeable? The roles of mother and father are not interchangeable. Do they have some overlap in the sense that they, you know, both can be models of discipline, of lifestyle? Yeah, of course. I think a mom is the safe place. She's the nest. And the husband is what helps get your child to look outward and to be brave and to be able to know that they have a protector so they can be more daring and that they can also look at their mom and know that they have a soft place to land too. I don't think the role of mother and father is interchangeable. I think being a mother is only something that a woman can do. A woman is nurturing and she's able to feed and take care of her children and also be receptive to her children in ways that the man can't be. Men naturally can't multitask and aren't really attuned to emotion the way that women are. So no, I, I do not think those roles are interchangeable. And I do think that the woman should primarily be home and be the one who's watching and taking care of the kids. That's not to say that there are men who are are more emotional and in tune with those things there are but i think naturally most women know their kids better just from being a woman motherhood and fatherhood not only are they distinct but they're both so essential oh, gosh this might be a really terrible example but if you ever watch criminal minds or any of those shows and you're trying to find this serial killer the first thing that they always do or bring up is what was the perp's relationship like with their mother in childhood? What was the perp's relationship like with their father in childhood? If those two things weren't distinct and if they don't matter, then why, <laughs> you know, so much of human psychology is based on these wounds that we have from our mothers and our fathers and, and they're different wounds that speak to different things. To say that there'd be no negative impact on a child that doesn't have a father, to say that there'd be no negative impact on a child that doesn't have a mother, I never heard a good case for that. <laughs> I'm Krames, and this is my corner. Well, that's all I have for you this week. I want to thank my guests, Father Kevin, for being my show's chaplain, Mark Cumming for helping me with this week's show, and you for listening. Be sure to share this on Apple and Spotify with anyone who you think might enjoy it, specifically anyone based. Animal based!
If you're like Aria and need more based, make sure you never miss an episode of The Based Catholic. Saturdays at 5 p.m. on AM 1420. The answer, as well as on all podcasting platforms and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Jessica Kramer helps you be Catholic and be based. There's a show. That's a show.